Dickinson will put it in. There's the catch. Here's the shot. Wagner off the glass. No! Oh, it's over! And UCLA from the first four to the final four. And it's been a long time coming. The Baylor Bears are back in the final four for the first time in 71 years. We'll do it. Gonzaga is going to the final four. They are unbeaten with history in their crosshairs. It's over. The dream is alive for Houston. For the first time in 37 years, the Cougars are going to the Final Four. This is High Motor by Bet MGM. Andrew Doughty and Chase Kitty with the Final Four set this weekend. Just as we predicted, if you were listening to High Motor by BetMGM throughout the college basketball season, you were aboard that UCLA Pac-12 train with us because we've been pumping UCLA and Pac-12 basketball for, I mean, what, for basically, it was basically Winthrop and UCLA over the last two months. And I think we should take a little victory lap for being the only college basketball podcast out there that's been talking about Pac-12 basketball every single week since November. I think we deserve the victory lap here. Do I have brain damage right now? I don't remember this. Were we were we pumping UCLA? I don't know if there was an episode that we did since November in which we did not spend at least five minutes pumping UCLA basketball. Am I okay, off so, here? So so now I know. Now I know we're off. This is this is just a bit for people who are listening to the show for the first time, right? That's what's going on was, right now. It was Winthrop and UCLA. It was definitely Winthrop. We should take a betting victory lap, though, huh? That one. I got no, I got burned on Alabama, one. but yeah, betting victory lap to the first couple weekends of the tournament. Uh, I think you tweeted something like, "If you were listening to High Motor by Bet MGM, you're in the black over the last two weekends. If oh, you yeah. were actively listening." Oh, yeah. I would imagine you did pretty well. I'm still a little bit bummed out, like I said, about Alabama. I really like them to cover against UCLA. Now UCLA riding a five-game ATS winning streak, five outright wins as the underdog. We're going to get into some tourney stuff, of course, a Final Four look ahead at lines. Baylor is a five-point favorite on BetMGM.com. Gonzaga getting full uh, two full touchdowns and the PATs against UCLA, 14-point favorite. I believe I saw this morning. I want to go back and look to make sure. I believe I saw it was the biggest Final Four spread ever. To close the show today, we're going to do maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes on baseball on opening day. We don't talk a whole ton of baseball. About a month, month and a half ago, we did some win total stuff. So we're going to circle back to that with opening day on Thursday. And we'll drop this episode. We're talking here on Wednesday night. We'll drop this episode immediately after recording. So hopefully you'll have time whether that's tonight or Thursday, hopefully some time before first pitch, at least for some of the games on Thursday. Uh, if not, also some general betting talk for baseball in there. So we're, we're just not going to run through a bunch of run lines for opening day. Some betting talk for baseball. Did you think UCLA was underseeded? Did you think they were? No. Of course not. No follow-up. <laughs> no analysis needed. Wait, do I? No. 
I loved your tweet after the Loyola Oregon State game, where it was just like one of those tweets where, huh? Looking around this Twitter.com here, not seeing a lot of Loyola underseated talk today. What happened to it? Strange. Where did it go? I guess Sister Jean didn't have a scouting report prayer for this game. Serious question. Did you think UCLA was underseated? Because I no. didn't. No. We got here's what we got to stop doing, and this is not a college basketball thing. This is a sports thing. We have to stop watching an outcome and then like explaining why we we should have known that outcome happened. Does it make like, us feel better? Like, does it make people feel better? Like Illinois fans to I get that people are going to complain about it, and there's they were complaining about the refs and stuff like that. I don't want to get into that, but does it just make you feel better saying, you know what, Loyola should have been a seven? Is that why you do it? I think people naturally want to make the world make more sense. And so I get that part of it. It's just, you know, it's not because UCLA and VCU go to the final four as 11 seeds that were the last four into the tournament. Like we don't then have to say, well, they shouldn't have been in the first four. Like those two things are not necessarily related. I don't. I mean, that seems like obvious to me, but I guess other people like don't make that connection. Why can't we just say we didn't? Isn't that why people love March Madness? They love the NCAA tournament because of how unpredictable it is, and how I think our expectations were really low this year because most of us were just excited to see any NCAA tournament, but. I mean, that's why people watch this. That's why it's a billion-dollar-per-year revenue event for the NCAA because people watch this with brackets and betting, and it's unpredictable. Then why, like, where does this weird thing come in that we have to explain, like, what happened? We can go back and look at UCLA season and say, yeah, at certain points in the season, they played like a team that could beat a team like Michigan, but... At no point during this season, just like when we were talking about Oregon, I don't know if we talked about it on the show or, or I was just talking about it on Twitter, just like Oregon State lost to Portland, and now Oregon State is almost going to the Final Four, why can't we just say, hey, nobody saw this coming? Why is that so uncomfortable for us? Not you and I specifically, but yeah, it's just I mean, because we need to find a reason behind everything? I think the takeaway from this conversation is that you and I are better than everybody else and that uh, we should probably be like secretary general of the United Nations. And at the same time, we could be chairman of the college football committee and we could go on and give actual answers to questions and uh, just keep, you know, keep everybody in line. I mean, they, they won two overtime games this tournament. I can't, I can't remember right now. I'm blanking on what exactly happened at the end of regulation uh, against Michigan State. But, like, they could have not come back at halftime. I think they were down by 10 or 15 points at halftime. Like, that, how close was that to not happening, just getting out of the first four? And now, like, I'm glad that we're not seeing this. That, that, that I mean, I know we're kind of mocking people here, but I'm actually happy that we're not relitigating how everybody was like everybody was after the Loyola game, Loyola game, and saying how did UCLA get an 11 seed? 
yeah, they got an 11 seed because they deserved an 11 seed. They deserve to be in the first four. They got what they deserve based on what they've done this season. So I know we're mocking this, but I'm happy waking up today and not seeing everybody bitching about UCLA's 11 seed. Maybe we should move on. I would end uh, this conversation with this note. My theory, uh, and, and I do think this explains everything, is that Mick Cronin watched the season finale of WandaVision and then went and played against Tom Izzo, Mr. March, in the first four and used what he learned from Scarlet Witch to absorb the March powers of Tom Izzo, and that's how UCLA got to the Final Four. Any thoughts on UCLA's five-game ATS streak? I mean, this is a team that we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think at the start of the tournament. This is a team that wasn't great against the spread this year going to the tournament. I think they're 12-14 and 14 entering the tournament against the spread. Historically, they've been one of the most overvalued teams really since that last Final Four in 2008. And 14 for this game is a huge, huge number. After you've been pumping the last two weeks that tournament games are generally closer than regular season games. It's not like we don't see double-digit Final Four wins. I mean, it's not like this would be some kind of an outlier if Gonzaga does cover. I mean, Villanova was up 15, I remember, against Kansas at halftime three years ago and cruised, I can't remember what the final score of that game was, but it was at least a 15-point win. It was somewhere 18, 19, 20. So it's not like we don't see this before. So my question for you regarding this is, how are you balancing this? Like, how are you balancing... UT, uh, UCLA's ATS winning streak, which I think if you're paying attention to betting even casually, you know what UCLA is doing this term. Might not know what they did in the regular season, what they have done over the last 10 years against the spread, but you at least know that UCLA has five wins as an underdog. So how are you balancing that with Gonzaga just being so good, crushing spreads, how are you balancing that with your early research now three days out of the final four? Uh, I'm balancing it by not betting the spread in that game <laughs> because I, I don't, I mean, you, you, you outlined that perfectly. Like, Hey, UCLA unpredictable, lots of big covers, lots of outright wins as dog. Okay, cool. Uh, Gonzaga smashing huge point spreads. Okay, cool. I don't want to side in that game. Uh, I, so, now does I it just end there for you. Like, is that, yeah, is that kinda. it? Or did you dig into this game more? Uh, no, I mean, I, I've, I've looked at some of the numbers, the early numbers. I do think I have an angle on how I want to bet this game. It's just not going to involve the point spread. I'm not laying 14 points in a national semifinal, and I'm not betting against Gonzaga. So I have another way that I think I'm going to attack this game. I'm going to stick to that, and uh, I'm not going to force a point spread bet where I don't believe I have any sort of advantage. Uh, we, you know, we've covered in the NFL playoffs and, and now more recently with, with the NCAA basketball tournament, how, you know, you, you don't, as, as we get later into a tournament and there are smaller and smaller amount of games, you don't have to bet every game just because you bet, you know, nine games in the first round doesn't mean you have to bet both games in the national semifinal. So if you don't feel confident in the number you're taking, don't bet it. So are you going to tell us how you're betting this game, or are you just sure. going to tell us how you plan to bet this game? Sure. So what I have uh, uncovered watching Gonzaga, I'm going to take the Norfolk State game, that, that 116 match 
let's take that off the board because you know a lot of those 116 scores the numbers they get a little bit anomalous but let's look at the other three games they've played in those three games against Oklahoma Creighton and USC the first half total has gone over in all three games and this is a fun wrinkle the second half total has gone under all three games Gonzaga gets out to a fast-paced start. Both teams play fast. They score points. Gonzaga has a big halftime lead, and that explosion of points we usually see in the last two or three minutes of a college basketball game because the losing team is playing the foul game and you get lots of points late, that doesn't really happen. On top of that, Gonzaga, they slow the pace down. They play, I would say, you know, a modicum better defense. All of those things, I think, contribute to this trend. So there is a good chance that I will take the first half over for this game. And I will definitely be looking at the number for the second half under. That is how I plan to attack this game. The first half total on that game, uh, 69. The overall total, I just clicked out of it. I think it was 140, 144 and a half. Yeah, so the first uh, half, uh, 69. The entire game, 144 uh, and a half. But you don't have any interest in the first half spread here eight points for gonzaga you have no interest in that just the total no just looking at the total let me ask you about parlays here because we talked about that last week uh we both did pretty well on taking some favorites last week in your shit returns to normal i believe do i have that right <laughs> yes shit get, the shit gets back to normal parlay most of the shit did get back to normal last weekend with the exception of ucla in the final four for the first time in 13 years I don't love either of these lines. I haven't dug enough into the totals, and I, I kind of want to come back to that at some point before the Final Four. What I do kind of like is taking both of the favorites, Baylor and Gonzaga, with the money line. Baylor, a huge, or excuse me, Gonzaga, a huge number, 1,400. Baylor, I'm surprised it's not higher, 225. can put those two together for minus 183. I would like a, a little bit more return on that, but still, I mean, $50 bet you're making... $27, $28. Are you returning to the well for your favorite parlay this weekend? No. Uh, so the the reason I, I'm not as big a fan as that uh, plan of action as you are is that, A, you don't get a, like you identified, you don't get a lot of value from adding Gonzaga to that parlay, right? If you can take Baylor for 225 and you can take a two-team parlay for you know, a buck 80, you might as well just take Baylor at 225 because you're not getting a ton of value, but you are adding, you know, an extra step, an extra thing that could go wrong and mess your, your ticket up. So I'm not telling you, I think UCLA is going to beat Gonzaga. I'm just strictly talking about hypothetical risk. I could, as a separate argument, I could make the case that Gonzaga at 1150 is actually a pretty good value. Cause I just, I mean, I'm very impressed by what UCLA has done, but I don't think this they're going to beat Gonzaga, right? So that's that's sort of an addendum uh, to to this thought. I don't even know if I like Baylor at, at 225 on the money line because I do think obviously if you're picking one of these games for an upset to happen, it would be Houston beating Baylor, and I do think we should have a quick word here uh, to talk about how Houston got here. Uh, Houston beat 
This is the first time this has ever happened. They beat four double-digit seeds. That's how they got to the Final Four. They beat the 16, or I'm sorry, they beat the 15, they beat the 10, they beat the 11, and they beat the 12. Never happened before in the history of the tournament. Now they're going to go play Baylor, who is obviously by far the best team they will have played in this tournament. And I don't have this their schedule in front of them, but if I'm recalling, it, it's by far the best team they will have played who, all who, year. Who they, they played somebody back in December, I want to say. Uh, Texas, no, Texas Tech was in November. So this is the best team they've played since beating Texas Tech. And frankly, it's not even close. Right. Like, not so, even close. I, I find it hard given all of that background, to really know how to handicap this game. I know a lot of the more advanced analytics programs really like Houston in terms of betting them to win the whole thing. So I I, I do know that. I, I don't know that the actual results or what, you know, what my eyes tell me really back that up. I think if you really want to have any sort of position on this Baylor game, leave the money line at home. Uh, leave Gonzaga out of it and just go attack the point spread. It's not that big. You know, if if we're relying on the idea that, hey, this is by far the best team Houston will have played. I think Baylor's going to be prepared. There are obviously stakes, uh, you know, in the national semifinal game like this. Winner goes to the national championship game. Uh, it's not that big of a point spread. Just go ahead and bet the point spread, uh, which is not something I've said very often for favorites in this tournament. But here... If you want to bet this game, and I, I think I could make a strong case for not betting it at all, but if you want to bet it, maybe just lay the points with Baylor. Yeah, Baylor five-point favoring, and we're talking here on, on Wednesday night, so we'll see if this line moves. I think it opened at five. Uh, I need to go back and just make sure, though. Baylor five-point favorite Wednesday night. Still, what, 72 hours-ish until this game tips off. How much of the—I know you don't have access— exactly to the algorithms of those computer models, but what would you ballpark it? Those re- I mean, like I'm trying to ask you how much does Houston's defense play into this? Because I don't think Houston is that good. They just have a really good, pr- I mean, specifically perimeter defense, which I agree. I mean, could give Baylor some trouble. Baylor, one of the, the best, either, either the best or one of the best three point shooting teams of the country. Same with Gonzaga, Gonzaga, a little bit more balanced inside out than Baylor, but like, how much of it do you think is just that Houston smothers the perimeter, forces you inside, and plays really good defense inside the paint? Like, is that 75 80% of this equation? Because I, I don't know how Houston is going to – and I know it's, it's more about game flow. It's not like if Houston scores 70 points, they're going to win this game. I always hate when people say that. But it seems like I don't see them putting up 70 on Baylor, but I could very well see them holding Baylor – to low 60, 65. What's the total on this game? 135? I mean, how much... So, again, what percentage of the confidence do you think why systems like Houston to win it all is based on their defense? It's got to be extremely high. Well, I think a lot of these models, the way that they're programmed is they look at certain metrics. Uh, they look at uh, how, like, human sources, polls... Uh, other things of that nature are overvaluing or undervaluing certain teams. And I think the models that I was looking at before the tournament started were saying like, Hey, in terms of like, in terms of bang for your buck, in terms of people, uh, team squads that are being undervalued, like you should look at Houston, their metrics 
line up with other championship caliber teams, but as a two seed that comes from a non-power conference, like maybe they're being undervalued a little bit. So you might want to look at putting your money there. If we play this tournament a hundred times, I would say 99 other times Houston is going to end up having to play a tougher path to the final four. So it's just like, I'm not saying they couldn't have gotten there anyway. I'm saying because of the way it all shook out, I don't know how to commodify them, which makes me be want to be a little more conservative in estimating how they're going to stack up against a team like Baylor, who we spent all season pretty much saying, hey, this is one of the clear consensus two best teams in college basketball. I don't know how they stack up against that. Maybe they stack up well. Maybe they are really good. Maybe they win. Uh, but there's really no actual data or evidence that tells me that they can right now. I'm just totally guessing. And when you're in that place of I'm guessing I'm relying on my gut, that's usually where you're getting away from smart handicapping. That's betting like a frat boy. And I try not to do that. Give me an over under. I'm just sitting here thinking if the favorites win Gonzaga Baylor in the national championship game, will Gonzaga be their line? Will it be over or under? Seven and a half. Under. Six, six and a half? Think I, think it's, I think it's in the four and a half to six wow. and a half range. You think it'll yeah. be that low? Well, I think um, I think there is still... Look, let's, say they, if you, let's say they beat UCLA. Let's say they continue this and they beat you. They cover against UCLA and, you know, it's an 18-point game. And Baylor, you know, plays fine or whatever against Houston. I don't really care how that game goes. You think it'll be that low? You don't think the books will get crushed on that? I think if they make it too many points, then they're going to get crushed on Baylor because this is a team that was undefeated until very deep into the season when they had a COVID pause and they had to come back from it. They, it I mean, these were the two consensus best teams all year long. So they're they're not going to give Baylor seven or eight points. It just feels way too high. Looking at the, before we move on here, looking at the updated national championship odds, Gonzaga minus 225, Baylor plus 375, Houston 600, UCLA 2500. You mentioned though some of those models actually like Houston to win it all. Does 600 feel a little bit low to you? And I get even if they like that, I mean, are, are you really willing to, to take Houston at only 600 knowing that they have to beat a Baylor, Baylor and a Gonzaga team? I mean, that doesn't seem like enough. Yeah, I I would agree. That's a that's a good assessment on your part. Uh, I I'd say any team like if you cloned Baylor and said, could you beat Baylor and then Gonzaga, or if you cloned Gonzaga and, and told him to do the same thing, that their odds wouldn't be very good to do that. So yeah, Houston at plus six hundred to beat both of those teams sequentially. Uh, that uh, that's a tall order. Any other betting notes for this weekend? I don't think so. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride on those uh, Gonzaga half totals and uh, looking forward to a, a fun last weekend here of the 2021 season. Remember when I texted you? I think it was last weekend. I said, "Who's the best coach in college basketball right now?" <laughs> right. Do, do, so I've been I've, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this. The about reason my why response I, specifically. I, the reason why I asked you is. Because I feel like it changes, like, every single year, every year or two. And the second part of that is it's not Roy Williams. It's not Coach K. It's not Bill Self. 
it's not John Calipari. Like, not only is it not those guys, those guys aren't really even in the conversation, right? No, I don't the think coaches, so. Right, so it's it's these co- these highly paid coaches of blue blood programs. They they're not one of. I don't know if I put any of those guys in the top five. I wouldn't even put Roy Williams or Coach K in the top ten. I probably wouldn't even put John Calipari in the top ten. So like you have four blue blood coaches. Bill Self, I think, makes the least out of all th- out of all four of them. The other three are pretty high up there, making five, six, seven, eight, eight million dollars a year. And I'm, it's not even like a maybe they're not a top ten coach. I don't think Roy Williams is a top ten coach in college basketball. And that's why I asked you it because your mind immediately goes to, and that because you were being an ass about it, and the scenario I presented you with was okay. No, that's that was my real answer. That that was I was not being an ass. No, you were being an ass about it because I just I just wanted an answer from you. So I, I painted you a scenario where I said, okay, let's put a brand new program in St. Louis at a brand new university. Who are you going to hire? And I think you said Mark Few, right? Yeah. So j- just just so we're not like having this conversation behind like a cloak of mystery, you said, whom do you consider the best coach in college basketball right now? Don't give me any runaround bullshit here. The best right now, which was great foresight from you knowing how I think. So I said, sorry in advance for this answer, but that's an impossible question. College basketball is too complex of a sport to give you an answer without first defining what best means. Does the most with the least, highest ceiling, best recruiter, best at navigating an increasingly volatile sport, I said on the day that there is a NCAA lawsuit at the Supreme Court, uh, best at winning games, best at winning tournament games. So that that was uh, the the back and forth that we set we had that set the table for this conversation. You were right with that answer, and like I I, I knew that that was the right answer, but I just wanted to see what I could get out of you because I'm more of the belief that even though I asked the question, like I don't think there is a best coach in college basketball. I think you were totally spot on with that. There are just the right coaches for the right teams. And every so often, you know, the stars align. We're seeing that with Gonzaga this year with, with Baylor this year. And I think most, like my biggest takeaway from that is, is that I think that we're seeing a shift in college basketball because we're not, I mean, maybe five, 10 years ago, all four of those coaches were among the top five or top 10 coaches in college basketball. And now they're very clearly not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, or most people don't know that are listening, but to me, like, I'm almost to the point of saying that the five-star era is dead. I'm not quite there yet, but, like, these just aren't five-star teams. Like, what we saw even two years ago at the Final Four, those aren't five-star teams that we saw in Minneapolis. These aren't five-star teams that were seen in Indianapolis this year. I think Jalen Suggs might be the only five-star, and I'm using five-star loosely. If you want to talk top 25, top 30 recruit, whatever. But I think that Jalen Suggs might be the only five-star player in the Final Four. He'd actually go back and look about it, but he might be. It just feels like, you know, we kind of had that rush of the good Kentucky teams, the Duke freshman teams, and it's not even like lineups with three, four, five, five stars aren't winning, because clearly they're not, but it's not even each of these teams has one five-star, maybe two five-stars. It's the right pieces and it's the right coach, yada, yada, yada. Now it's I mean, look at Baylor. Like, these teams, like, don't have five stars. Jalen Suggs is it. Like, Drew Timmy wasn't a five-star. Corey Kispert wasn't a five-star. Again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but 
when I started, when I asked that question, I started just thinking about it and this dramatic shift in college basketball. And I don't, I don't want to react too much to what could just be a trend, but I feel like we're far enough down this road where we're not talking about the best teams in college basketball, or best coaches in college basketball, the ones that are landing these five-star recruits. Now Mark Few is landing the five-star recruits, and Gonzaga could be terrifying for the next couple of decades because obviously he's not going anywhere. You see my point here? I do. I think when it was that Anthony Davis Kentucky team that won the national championship, yeah, right? 2012, was, yeah, right. So I think when that team won, I think a lot of people, certainly myself included, in the moment read that as well there's your affirmation one and done it's here to stay it's successful you can win this way like this works this is now the new model and i think now when we look back at that i think we can more properly understand you know that wasn't necessarily the affirmation of one and done that we thought it was i think it was affirmation that wow anthony davis is really good (laughs) You know, he's a really good pro. He's a really good college player. He's he's a uniquely talented basketball player. And that was how that team won. More so than like, oh, this is the new model for how to win. You know, Duke has had some really good freshman classes. I know they won a, a national championship five or six years ago, but that wasn't necessarily like a, a one and done crop that they won with. Yeah, it was because it it was it was Jones and it was Grayson Winslow, Allen and Jones Winslow and uh, Okafor. So like, yeah, I get it wasn't like a full five star lineup, but I, I kind of put that in the same group. Like, I feel like that we're maybe there's like levels to this. Maybe Kentucky is like the highest level, all five stars, nobody else is playing basically. Then it goes down to Duke, where you have three one and done freshmen, and like we're not even close to that anymore like, like we're if, so far away from done, that if one and done was like a bull just a bulletproof like this is the model by every right imaginable that zion team should have won a national championship and you know they, they didn't really get all that close so I, I mean the the way that tony bennett won at uva the as you've illustrated here the way that mark few is doing it at gonzaga and how he is sort of slowly methodically built this program that I think you say you call it horrifying. I think that's exactly the right word. Like they, they are not going away. Uh, so yeah, I, I think everything is cyclical. So obviously this isn't, you know, this isn't now the model forever, but it, it feels right now. Like things have swung back toward that idea of we're going to get our guys that fit what we're doing we're going to develop them. They're going to be older, and that's how we're going to win. And personally, I just I, maybe I'm a little bit old school because I have basketball in my family and coaching in my family. But that's what I like. Like that's what I want college basketball to look like. I want those older teams with players who stick around that are you know maybe don't have awesome pro careers in front of them. That's who I like to see win. So I'm happy about this selfishly. <laughs> Where are you taking us this week? You and I are about to get into a baseball discussion. Thursday is opening day, and so appropriately, we are turning the page to baseball with a strong air horn pick. I feel really good about this. Uh, I like the Baltimore Orioles in Boston on opening day. And we can talk more about this 
in a little bit, but I'll give you sort of the 60-second nugget right here. The Orioles had the better record than Boston last year. I can argue they have a better roster. They certainly have a better starting pitcher with John Means in this game. Uh, They are plus 160, and it's basically because there's this idea that it's opening day, and so it's like the one day in baseball where we're like, oh, well, the home team, you know, opening day. And I feel like oftentimes you can get dogs at unreasonably good prices because of that opening day narrative. So going into Thursday's opening day, I looked around Major League Baseball. I found a few road teams that I liked to play spoiler, and I thought we were getting at a really good price. This Orioles game is maybe the best one. The Red Sox are being way overvalued because they're a big brand that won four World Series in the last 15 or 17 years or whatever it is. This team is not very good. They don't have the the better starting pitcher. Not convinced they have the better lineup. Not convinced they have the better manager. So I like everything for the Orioles in this particular matchup. Baseball, if you're new to betting it, it's all about the pitching matchups. you got to bet the number that's in front of you that correlates to the pitcher in the game on that side. I like the Orioles here at plus 160. Getting a nice little payday to start off the season. I want to start our baseball conversation by looking back to an unconventional unconventional last year and ask you, how much are you using, because I think you've talked in the past about how betting baseball during the first month of the season is quite a bit different than betting baseball during the last five months. So how much are you using last year's run line records, last year's over-under splits, any betting data from last year in general? How are you using that to evaluate the first, well, even the first games this week are opening day. Like, are you using that as much as a normal year when you're jumping right in, or because you only have 60 games last year plus the playoffs, you're not putting as much stock into that? How are you balancing that going into this year? I think it's really hard. You don't want to put too much stock into anything from last year because I think we've talked about this before. Baseball is a maximalist sport. It's 162 games. So it's not just who's got the best team, who's got the best pitcher, but it's who can sustain a certain level of production over an obscenely long season where every team, the Dodgers, are going to have a bad streak where they lose, you know, six of eight games. It happens to everybody, but it's about how you perform over that long stretch of time. Well, last year, we didn't have a long stretch. And 60 games isn't even half of a full season. So it's in a game that is centered around doing things over the long haul. I think it's really tough to try to take too many assumptions out of a short burst of time, relatively speaking. It's why a lot of people argue against the wild card format. Cause it's like, wow, we're going to, we're going to play 162 games. We're going to see who's best over 162 so games. Dumb. And then we're going to decide who advances in the playoffs on a one-game playoff? Hate it. So I I want to be careful about overreacting too much. But I do think there are some interesting notes that you can get when comparing what happened last year and then maybe referencing that against this season's win totals and sort of seeing, putting the math together on what books think 
about a team. Um, so I'll give you an example. I've talked about the Phillies a lot because it's, it's a number I regularly have been attacking the last few years. The Phillies last year, uh, I, I believe we talked last year even about this. Their win total was, I believe it was 29 and a half yeah. in a 60 game season. So basically, they were saying, do you think the Phillies can get to 500? And I brought up the recent history and said, hey, the Phillies, uh, it, it seems like they're a good franchise. You know, they're 10 years removed from the World Series or whatever, 10, 12, whatever, whatever. Uh, they they signed Bryce Harper. They've got, you know, an A-list star in the sport. They, they've had decent pitchers recently, still have decent pitchers. You know, they've got some big bats, especially for a National League team. They play in a division that I think generally has some wins available in it. Like it's it's not the NL West, you know. It, it's it's the NL East. It's a little different. Uh, usually, the whoever's at the bottom of that league is not great. So, lots of people probably would look at that number and go, "Oh, the Phillies will be 500," but they haven't been north of 500 in a while. And in fact, last year they go 28 and 32. So my my sort of counterintuitive read on the situation that you should you should take the under here is good. Well, we come back to this year. What's the under for the Phillies? It's like eighty point five, it, which is the exact same mathematical sort of situation they put in front of you last year. Do you think the Phillies can get to eighty one and eighty one? Do you think they can get to five hundred? I, once again, am going to rely on the history and say, no, I think they're probably still going to be in that we won 45 to 50% of our game situation. So the fact that that number relative to the number of games in the season did not change at all from last year to this year tells me that books probably don't think there's going to be a substantive change in what the Phillies are and how they are playing over a long stretch of time. They're still handicapping them as a just below 500 type of team, which is why they're giving you a better, the the exact same sort of bait. Uh, When you look at what happened last year and you look at the win totals, that's how I might use some of that information is I put it all together and I make a judgment call based on how the that data is interacting with each other. When you have a team that, I get that over sports history, there are teams that just get better with the pieces that they have. We see that you know fairly often. But in most cases, when you're a, what were they last year, 28 and 32? 28 and 32. 2019, yeah. they were 81 and 81. 2018, 80 and 82. So what's going to change? 66 and 96. You had a winter where you did nothing, and I get that you were in a division where only the Mets did really anything. The Nationals didn't do that much in in the winter. The Marlins didn't do that much over the winter. Uh, The Braves didn't do a ton, but the Braves were already probably going to be a 90-plus win team. So even though your division didn't do a whole lot, you still have, outside the Mets, obviously, you still have a division where, I mean, talk about what the, what the book thinks of these teams. Braves are at 91.5, Mets at 90.5, Nationals at 84.5, and the Marlins down there at 70.5. Uh, 70 the Marlins were actually one of the best uh, ATS teams in the league last year. 
how do you balance that? Like, how often do you find yourself where this team did nothing to improve after, like you said, almost a decade of being either outright bad or just literally mediocre at 500? Like, is there any sort of confidence in, in a particular situation, you obviously don't have confidence in the Phillies that they're going to get better after doing nothing. But like, how much does that play into the equation? I mean, even like, take the Mets for example. Like, they're at ninety and a half. I can't remember what their total was going to last year, and then they finished below five hundred. But they're a team that went out and got Carrasco and Lindor, uh, signed a couple other pieces too. Like, do you do you put that much stock into when a team actually goes out and does stuff? Or do you find that to be, and maybe that's the question, do you find that as an opportunity to maybe go under the 90 and a half for the Mets because everybody knows they went out and got those pieces? Uh, I think because, look, there are people that know baseball better than me. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty good on baseball. I am not locked into transactions and pitchers and catchers reporting and all this stuff, right? So when I see a team that makes a lot of moves, my gut reaction is is to sit and wait and see what happens. I don't necessarily want to make an evaluation like a GM would of like, oh, I think all these pieces are going to interact this way. I try to find other other ways to attack something. And so, like, well, yeah, let me, let, so let me interrupt you for a second. The reason yeah. I ask you that is because, I mean, you've talked a lot about public perception and playing into that. I mean, we Going back to that Arkansas Colgate total with Seth, Seth Davis saying that this number is going to be about the marketplace, w- yep. whatever it was. Yeah, so the marketplace for in a situation like that, that that's kind of why I ask you because you're so plugged into the numbers, and it's not like you don't know sports, but you've talked about this before when you first started betting. You're like, well, yeah, I mean, I know football. I can probably do this. And maybe you know, 80% of your bet is based on what you're actually seeing on the field, and 20% are the numbers in the books, and now that has flipped where – you know, it's 80% probably where you're the numbers. And even though you do know football, most of what you're putting into these bets are the numbers. So in a case like that, even though you don't maybe necessarily know like how Carrasco's slider looks in the spring training or what Francisco Lindor's, I think, what was his injury, his ankle or wrist or something? I can't remember. You don't, you don't follow the injury report of that. But you also are aware that people are aware of what the Mets are doing and that they're going for it this year with a win total of 90 and a half. So because that that's why I want to talk about this because you don't like have to actually know baseball. You don't have to be in the grind staring at fan graphs every single day watching how a slider is cutting. It's more so the perception question that I want to ask you when the Mets are going for it. Does that present an opportunity because people are now overvaluing the Mets um, as they did last year, I mean, they were completely shitty against the spread. Is there an opportunity for that? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really good handicap by you, actually. Um, you should think about betting the Mets on Are it. you surprised? <laughs> uh, well, you know, a lot of times on, on this podcast, I'm the one that's, that has, uh, the, the, the really good gambling ideas, but that was a pretty good read by you. Uh, that, that's a, that's a great marketplace breakdown. So yeah, I, I think that's a I think that's a good case. I think if you believe in the Braves, you know, seeing that the Braves and the Mets are both sitting there with numbers over ninety, in a way they are kind of telling you, hey, we're going to make you pick, because it's it's mathematically unlikely that they both have you know ninety five wins. It's not impossible, but it's probably unlikely. Uh, so they are kind of making you pick. I think one way you could read those numbers is to do exactly what you just said. That like, hey, like 
isn't the Mets number inflated by the marketplace because of all these dramatic moves. I think another way you could read it is who do I think is going to be at the bottom of that division? Because if I think there's going to be multiple teams competing at the top, even if the Mets go under 91 and a half, but they're still there in the high 80s and they're like a really strong wild card candidate, uh, those losses have to go somewhere. So that's that's one thing I, I did with the AL East last year is I looked at the top and went, man, uh, I mean, somebody's got to lose these games. I think it might be the Red Sox. And then it was way worse than I imagined it would be. Uh, I mean, talking about reading the marketplace and sort of fading big, splashy public moves, one of the bets I've taken this year for for baseball win totals that I I I did I made this bet since we talked about it uh, a few weeks ago when we sort of had a an after the air horn uh, segment on, on MLB totals coming out. I'm going against San Diego because of exactly what you just talked about with the Mets. I mean, I there's like ninety. 93 or something? It's 94, 94 and, and a half. half. Jesus. You know the last time the Padres won 95 games? Where are they going to get... I mean, going back to like somebody has to take the losses, where are you going to get... Yeah, the Rockies are going to suck, but I mean, the Giants and Diamondbacks won't be that bad. They're total of 75 and a half, so and obviously the I mean, they're in the division with the Dodgers. Right. Where are you going to... I mean, even if you... Let's say you split... With the Dodgers, which I don't think is totally unreasonable. Even if you split there, where else are you getting the 80-ish wins across the National League? Because I, I just don't see where those wins are possibly going to come from. That was that was not a rhetorical which... question, by the way. You do this to me all the time, so I wanted to do it to you. Do you know the last time the Padres won 95 games? <laughs> when they went to the World Series? Uh, that's correct. 1998, they got swept uh, in the World I mean, Series, yeah. but they went 98 and 64 that year. That is the only time the Padres have ever had 95 wins. One time, going back to 1969, they would have gone over a 94 and a half total. What do you do? You think there's a COVID factor here? And even though I'm very optimistic that there won't be that many cancel, I mean. Like last year, I think there were 900 games scheduled and all but two games were played. So like the, the games will get in. I don't, when I looked up that stat, I was surprised. I thought more games weren't played because I wasn't totally uh, paying attention to all those last games of the season with the, fo- well, it, all the football. It felt stuff like it early on. with the Cardinals and the Marlins and like yeah, shit. I thought went there was sideways. no way. You could have told me 50 games didn't get played and I would have believed you. Do you think that other people kind of have that? same opinion that I do that maybe there will be canceled games this year, even though based on last year, the likelihood of that happening is highly unlikely. And the book is using that to their advantage. Uh, well, I, I, what, from what I've seen, it's no action at most books. If you don't, if the team doesn't complete at least 160 games. Yeah. So there, there's not, there's not a ton of the psychology component of that. I mean, you talk about that all the time. Like, is there a psychology component where somebody might think, Oh, I don't know. Maybe I should take the under because maybe they don't play all these games and they might not know that if it's under 160, it's wiped off the board. Well, I think as a general rule, public bettors are not looking to bet the under. They, I think the, the average better looks at X team and thinks, oh, they're going to be good this year. I should bet the over, right? Oh, the Padres just locked up Tatis to a massive 
contract. I'm gonna bet the over. They're gonna be good. Uh, the, and they, you know, they've got Machado and like, you know, I think that's how the the public better thinks. I'm not convinced that they're thinking about. Well, I might pick up a couple of cheap non-wins if there's a COVID cancellation. You know, when we have a flare-up after the Fourth of July, I, I don't. I'm not sure that like square guys are thinking that way. Uh, let's wrap this up with some opening day talk. Hopefully some people are listening to this before opening day. What other numbers do you like in addition to that Orioles number? Yeah. So obviously I like the Orioles. Uh, I I mentioned that as the air horn pick for this episode. I'm looking, as I said, I'm looking for road spoilers because I think that there is extra juice on home teams for opening day. That is my theory. I don't have any evidence of that. It's just how I want to attack opening day. So I'm looking at the Twins, who I think uh, it's basically even in Milwaukee. The Brewers are 105. The Twins are 105. I just think I think the Twins are better. I think they have the better pitcher. And I really don't have to lay any juice. So I'm, I, I'm laying a, a little bit on Minnesota. I think the Diamondbacks there are an interesting option. I think when you look at, uh, I mean, I know I was just talking up going against the Padres, so maybe this isn't surprising, but I think, like, I don't know, does you Darvish really, like, amaze me as an ace? Like, I'm not convinced that's an awesome option for the Padres to go with. Uh, so Bumgarner against Darvish, I, I don't know how to really handicap those those pitchers at all, to be honest with you. Uh, Bumgarner is so inconsistent in the regular season. But at plus 210, I'm willing to take a flyer on the Diamondbacks. I mean, that it just seems like the Padres are way juiced because they're a big... I don't think you're crazy to argue they're a public team now because of the offseason moves and, and, and the big stars that they have that are very visible and very popular. I like the Diamondbacks there for a little flyer at plus 210. And I like the Braves. Uh, I, I, uh, they're playing in, Phil, in Philadelphia. It's basically kind of like the, the Twins-Brewers situation. It's basically even money both ways. And, I, you know, Nola doesn't blow me away as a starting pitcher. So I'm I'm not convinced there that the Phillies should, should be running even with Atlanta in, in terms of uh, where the teams are, are, are priced. The Braves certainly are, are a capable offensive team and I like their pitching staff better. And I think I'm getting value on what I see as the way better team that's being offered in an even cost because they're the road team on opening day in Philadelphia. Send us any mailbag questions to at High Motor Pod on Twitter if you're curious about anything or want to talk about lines elsewhere, trends we saw in the NCAA tournament and whatnot. NFL draft coming up in only four weeks. We'll also get back into some college football stuff. Really excited to get back into that. We haven't done college football since since the playoff. I can't even remember the last time we did college football. Maybe since Thor was on, we did some NFL draft up, uh, NFL draft stuff. So a lot of off-season college football topics to get into. We'd love to have you back for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for dropping by High Motor by BetMGM. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside, The feeling still remained the same 
We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces